0: You're listening to Writers on Writing, a show about the art, craft, and business of writing. I'm Barbara DeMarco Barrett. Ben is the author of the poetry collection For the Love of Endings. His work appears in The New Yorker, The Nation, and the Kenyan Review, among others. He's the founder of Backdraft, a Guernica interview series focused on revision and the creative process. He holds degrees from Harvard and New York University, and he currently teaches at Rutgers. The Men Can't Be Saved is his first novel and the focus of our talk today. On the show, we talk about making unlikable characters redeemable, how Judaism plays a role in Ben's life and in his fiction, the crossover from poetry to fiction, choosing point of view, and more. Before we bring him on, a few words about Patreon. Please consider visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash writers on writing. Consider becoming a supporter. There are perks for supporters and any amount helps us to continue bringing the show to you. Since 1998, when Writers on Writing began broadcasting at KUCI-FM on the UC Irvine campus and later when podcasts became a thing in 2005, we've never taken a break from this volunteer. your effort it's just marie and me hosting and producing with travis barrett who does the music and sound editing even a few dollars a month helps us to continue bringing the show to you and now for my talk with ben Parker. i am so glad to talk to you about this book the men can't be saved um So much to talk about. But first, let's hear from you. Um, Talk about what inspired you to write it. And if you remember when um, the thought came to you that this had to be a book.
1: Yeah. So my first job out of college was working as a tagline copywriter at a branding agency. And when I first got that job out of college, none of my friends knew what it was. It was sort of a random job to get. I mean, we were all happy to, to have a job, right? So I was, I was just grateful to be employed. Um, but it, it wasn't something that had a lot of cachet or even you know was widely understood. And then the show Mad Men came out more or less the same time I started at the job. And that was really exciting because all of a sudden it felt like there was this social capital, right? Like People knew who Don Draper was. People had an interest in the agency world, especially working in a, a New York agency, which is where I was. And so there was this spotlight on the type of work that I was doing very shortly thereafter, the great recession hit. And so a lot, you know, it's it's remarkable how many jobs were lost in that area so quickly, because marketing, advertising, these are often the first budgets cut. So a lot of my friends, a lot of my colleagues were losing their job week to week. I was only 21, 22, and it was a really upsetting, traumatic time. Being at the agency during that period, there was so much tension. And so I I think that on some level, that was what compelled me to write the book, just that feeling of coming to work every day, wearing the t-shirt that the agency gave you, wearing, you know, having the business cards that they gave you. Carrying that identity as a big part of yourself and then suddenly knowing, wait a minute, all of this could be taken away at the drop of a hat. And in my novel, The Man Can't Be Saved, the main character, you know, when when he loses his job at the agency, it is devastating for him. And so the the crux of the novel is really just watching him spiral.
0: (laughs) Well, I found it really interesting when I came across the book, the title the title is, of course, intriguing and controversial, and um, and one of the themes is toxic masculinity and all of that. And I wondered if you had second thoughts about putting the book out at this time under this title. Has it always been called The Men Can't Be Safe?
1: It hasn't always been called that. I, I worked through lots of different titles. I worked on this book for... A little bit less than a decade, so I can assure you, in a drawer behind me, there's you know Microsoft Word docs that have been printed out with probably you know ten different titles at different points. I, you know, I'm someone who I, I wanted a title that felt bold. I wanted a title that felt almost like a tagline that was going to get attention. So the men can't be saved. When I came up with that line, you know, it took me back a little bit because it felt so big. It felt so, um, you know, like it was really drawing a line in the sand. And so I asked myself, you know, could I stand behind a title like this? I I think this is a very loud book. And so it needed a loud title. Um, You know, now that I landed on that title, I, I, I don't even remember what the others are, right? Because it's like, it's like sort of like, once you name your kid, you forget about all the other names that you were considering, because that's just... Jimmy or that's just, you know, Susie or whatever it is. So I, I I feel great about the title and the way that it hopefully starts a conversation.
0: Mm. Well, talk about writing complex and possibly unlikable characters, because I know that's been talked a lot regarding the book and, and readers, of course, like reading about people that they'd never hang out with. But I'm curious where the line is between writing a character that is possibly unlikable and writing one that's unrelatable Um, because it seems like unlikable characters need to be relatable and Seth your protagonist is relatable. Um, Talk about that.
1: Yeah you know I think I'm someone who and, and my background is really in poetry rather than fiction so you know, I, I know that in fiction, oftentimes you're supposed to have an arc. Oftentimes you're supposed to have a character who, you know, people identify with. I, I know all those things, but I was not taught those things. My my background really is on the level of the poem, on the level of the word, on the level of the syllable. So that that's how I approach fiction. So at, at no point, for better or worse, did I go into this project feeling like, Seth my main character, you know, I need him to be that some someone who people identify with. That that was never in my consideration. I just wanted to make him feel real. Mm-hmm. And so part of him feeling real in my mind was let me present this guy in with all of his warts. Like let, let's like re, let's really enter what his consciousness is and not sugarcoat it. And my hope is that over the course of the novel as he gets you know, without spoiling anything, as he gets his comeuppance, right? I mean, he has a pretty significant fall from grace um, that we can identify with his struggle, even if we don't necessarily applaud or even approve of his behavior because he makes lots of bad decisions. So, so that's part of it. I, I wanted him to feel real rather than um, any sort of idealized vision of of what a person might be. But I also, you know, I think that one of the things that fiction does is that, and you alluded to this, it allows us to get close to people who we might not ordinarily want to get close to. Mm -hmm. I live in an apartment building. There are, you know, not to name names, but there are people in my apartment who I might not want to spend that much time with. They're loud, you know, they're down the hall, right? I don't want to go over to dinner necessarily with them, nor Mm -hmm. am I being invited, but (laughs) I, I, I may not want to spend an hour or two hours with them, Because I find them a bit unlikable, but if I could enter their consciousness, if I could see the world through their eyes, which is, I think what a novel allows you to do, I would 100% take them up on that opportunity. So I, I, whether it's a show like Succession, which is a, you know, that's a divisive show. Some people love it. Some people hate it, but Kendall Roy is no one that I would want to spend any time with in real life. But when he shows up on my TV screen, like I'm down. I want to see the world through his eyes. I think it's fascinating. So um, I think there's different art for different people. And part of what I'm excited about with this book is that I've gotten, I got this great text message this week from a friend of mine who said, um, my wife is reading the book and she loves Seth. She finds him so charming and funny and endearing. And I find him so conceited and I can't stand him. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and so, you know, good job. You created a, a complicated character. So I I loved that, right? Yes. That's that felt good.
0: So you want to hear. Well, one of the things that makes him relatable or redeemable too is um he likes his mother. Yeah. And and there are people he cares about and helps even when he doesn't really want to. The acquaintances that come over from Israel that that he he got to know a little bit when he was over there. You know, he's like, ah, uh, do I have to? And then he does. Mm-hmm. So uh, I wonder, you know, about that in terms of were you thinking, let's let's have him save the cat to uh, coin coin a title that people are talking about because you know you have to make your characters at least uh, redeemable in some way. I mean, did you think about that or or you know, I mean, you said the novel took ten years more or less. Mm-hmm. Was that something that evolved over time? Like, well, let's see, who else is he? What else is going on in there?
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, I to be clear, I, I wouldn't have spent 10 years with him as a character if I wasn't interested in it, if I didn't think that there was a silver lining or redeemable. I mean, he's also, you know, he's so young right. and he, I, I think he's a fictional character, right? So it feels a little ridiculous to say this, but it would be interesting to visit with Seth in his 30s, in his 40s, in his 50s, you know, to see to what extent he changes. Um part of the way the book functions as I see it is that there's Seth and then there's his alter ego, Moon. And Moon is just, you know, he's he's insufferable. He's so loud. He's like, if you watch Mad Men, he's Roger Sterling. He just behaves however he wants to behave and everyone else can, you know, just get out of the way. And so Seth, I think Seth, you know, can't stand Moon because he's so repulsed by him. On the other hand, he's really convenient because it's a way for Seth to tell himself, hey, I'm not I'm not this guy, right? I may not be perfect. I'm no saint, but at least I'm not this guy. And that is something that I'm interested in in terms of how men justify their behavior and comparing themselves against the lowest common denominator as opposed to um, trying to be ethically or morally, righteous or, or even, you know, upstanding. So I don't know that that answers your question necessarily, but I, I, I think that, um, you know, if we're going to spend, if, if you're going to ask a reader to spend this much time, cause a novel is a, is a big ask. I think you have to create a character who's got many sides. And part of that is, is the ugly sides. And part of that is also the potential. Mm.
0: So speaking of Mad Men, uh, who who do, Who is he closest to if he were a character on Mad Oh my God,
1: Barbara, I've been waiting for someone to ask me this question. <laughs> Mad Men comes up in every interview and no one has asked this question. So I'm so grateful to you. Are you are you a Mad Men fan?
0: Yeah, I think okay. I'm watching it for the second time.
1: Oh, wow. Okay, cool. Uh, for me, he's Pete Campbell.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and Pete was always, I don't know if he was my favorite, but Pete and Roger were my favorite two characters. And I mean, I love Joan, I love Peggy, I love, I love them all. But um, something about Pete, you know, he's just so impish. He's, he's such a little shit. And yet I loved him. And um, he believes so deeply in the agency. He lives and dies it. Whereas Don just, you know, is, is so much cooler than the agency could ever be. So in my mind, Seth has a lot of Pete in him. He's entitled. Um, he's sniveling, he's only <laughs> out for himself, and yet I don't know i I found him endearing. he's so weak, you know yeah
0: yeah, yeah you you I can't stand him at times, and yet I feel for him,
1: you right know?
0: like, oh, Pete, poor Pete <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> yeah. well, you know, I was thinking about Seth's personality profile and what he might be, according to like Myers Briggs or. Mm-hmm. You know, whether is he a narcissist, if, you know, not that Myers-Briggs really goes into that, but is that anything you thought about or worked out in terms of like, where would he be on this scale of whatever, in terms of personality?
1: And You know, I never did the Myers-Briggs on him, but <laughs> you know, it's funny, right? Because as the author, I feel like on some level, I'm, I'm the best person to ask. And on some level, I'm the worst person to ask because- mm-hmm all I was trying to do was create a voice to create a character. And I wanted a voice that felt tragic comic. Seth is, I mean, he's a joke on some level. He's, he's so ridiculous and he makes so many bad decisions and he's got such an overinflated sense of his own ego. Um, but I think that there's something also deeply sad about him and his inability to cultivate friendships or, or closeness or relationships. Um, that I feel deeply. So, you know, is he a narcissist? Absolutely. But, you know, there's a lot of narcissists in all of us. And certainly in the New York City advertising, branding, agency world, at least when I worked in it, you know, we were not short of big egos. I'll put it that way.
0: Right. Well, you mentioned voice and, um, you know, because your book took a while to, to, um, be written and be finished. Uh, talk about finding the voice for the character because it's also. I wanted to ask you. It's um, I think first person past tense, and how much of that went into finding the voice, and was it ever third person, and did you play around with, you know, how am I going
1: to tell this story? So it was always first person, and I don't know. Yeah. I mean, every it's so hard, right? Because one is not easier or harder than another. They they just have they're different games that you're playing. Um, I'm working on a fiction project now, which is in third person, and it's it's interesting to see the challenges and the opportunities that open up when you shift. the The major change for me was not from third person to first person or anything like that. It was a motivational change. So when I first wrote the book, when when I wrote the first draft, Seth his views on the branding agency world were very similar to my own. He was ambivalent. He worked there, but he didn't really deeply invest himself in the work. He didn't really believe in the, the 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 value of branding and advertising as an industry. He was just sort of more skeptical. And so when he lost his job, it didn't really feel that crushing because he wasn't all that invested. And then when I had a few friends read it, you know, they said, well, why... Why doesn't he care more? Like what would happen if you just turned up the volume on that in a really intense way? Like what if instead of this being just a job for Seth, what if it's his whole identity so that when he gets laid off, we see him squirm and lose his mind. Mm -hmm. And the minute I got that edit, it was like, Oh, this is so right. And I know it's going to take me so long because now I got to rewrite huge parts of the book. But, um, that, that was the edit that in many ways created the voice because Hmm. the minute I, I made him, you know, so deeply invested, the the minute he kind of became that Pete Campbell type where working at the agency was everything for him. Um, it opened up a lot of doors, but it also meant that I had to change scenes and I had to, you know, so as a writer yourself, you can appreciate it's a, it's a big change, but it's such a gift when a friend gives you an edit like, like that, because then you know, the light bulb goes off and then you just have to work.
0: How far into the process were you at that point? How many years had you been working on it?
1: Um, Probably like two or three. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, because my background is in poetry, I don't know how to, I I think I I obsess a little bit and I overpolish the sentence, you know? I think it would have been smarter if I had, Allowed it to be rougher and then gotten some feedback, but I don't know how to do that. So yeah. um, I tried to polish something. I was just polishing it in the wrong direction. But you know, <laughs> that's I wouldn't. I wouldn't change anything. I don't think a writer is any better for having written twenty books over their life versus ten versus five. I mean, you just you try to write the best books you can.
0: Sure. Well, Judaism and faith play a role in his life and in the novel. Which made me realize once again that I hardly ever see mention of religion or faith in novels. Um, Hmm. And it seems like, I mean, there are a lot of religious publishers that of course do. Um, Those aren't books that I read. But what about that? I mean, I don't know. Why why don't we see more of this? And and how did how did Judaism become a part um, of the book?
1: That's really interesting. Um, you know, I think a, a novel can be a great mirror in some ways. I I'm, a, I'm someone who grew up in an interfaith home. My dad is Italian Catholic, um, went to church pretty much every Sunday. Um, my mom comes from a relatively observant Jewish household. I was raised Jewish. I had a bar mitzvah. And you know, if you had asked me at the very beginning of this project did I want to write a novel about Judaism, I would have said no. I want to write it about the agency world. That that's that's where my character lives, and you know. But in the process of writing a book like this, you can reveal your own obsessions, and I think being of an interfaith background has always it's complicated my relationship with Judaism because I I am Jewish, right? You know, my mom is Jewish, and I I observe the holidays and and stuff like that, Um, but. I'm also aware that it's only a percentage of me. It's a part of me. It's an identity. And for my main character, after he loses his job at the agency, he's so desperate for a new identity. I mean, he he wants his job back, but in truth, I think he wants to feel a part of something larger than himself, which is what an agency or any corporation can do, right? Is it can sort of play the role of um a congregation in a way. You can feel a part of something bigger and have faith in something bigger. When he loses that, I don't actually think it's all that surprising that Judaism becomes more of a factor in his life. But your question about why don't we read more novels that engage with faith uh, is an interesting one. I wouldn't have said that necessarily that there is a dearth of those, but um the minute you said it, it sounded it felt real to me. So I'm not sure. I'm not sure.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure either. <laughs> it's just like, but I notice when it is there and it, it's like, oh, this is interesting. Okay, good. Um, anyway, I would love to hear you read from The Men Can't Be Saved.
1: Oh, sure. Um, I wasn't going to read this part, but since we were just talking about Judaism, maybe we could read the part where he goes to Chabad for the first time. Okay. Um, but that means that I have to find it. So just give me a brief second, okay? Okay, so at this part in the novel, and I'll just read a little bit of this to give folks a flavor. Okay. Um, Seth is, has lost his job um, and he's road tripping um, for a variety of reasons. His ex is in um, rehab in Allentown, Pennsylvania. And he's been stopped on the street by a Chabad rabbi and invited for dinner. And so he decides that, um, why not? He's going to go have dinner at Chabad. So here here he is on the outside of Chabad house. I could hear my mother's voice scolding me for not bringing a gift, not even flowers. But it was, I assured myself, in character. A fiancé in my position wouldn't remember flowers. His distraught mind would be elsewhere. I forgot to tell you, he's lied to the rabbi already and and said that he has an ill fiancé in the hospital. As I stood outside the Chabad house, I heard the rattling of Rabbi Nadav working through a series of locks. Then he swung open the door, his long beard catching its cut of the porch light. Replacing his charcoal suit was a gray button-down flannel that billowed at his arms. "'Should I take off my shoes?' I asked. "'They're your feet,' he said, and led me inside. True to its name, Chabad House was an actual house, serving as the main residence for the rabbi and his family, in addition to hosting prayer services. I'd been to a Chabad only once before, during my freshman year of college. It had initially seemed redundant with Hallel, until I understood their different functions.' Whereas Hallel was a sprawling glass structure with its doors always open to interfaith dialogue, Chabad welcomed only those within the faith, the Chabad tagline, where every Jew is family. But if Chabad goers were more rigid in their dogma, they also had more fun. They believed in celebrating God heartily, in other words, libations. Walking through Nadav's foyer proved treacherous. Toys strewn all over the carpet, including many ponies with rainbow-colored manes and wheels for hooves. I could hear the stomping of bare feet in rooms off the main hall. Nadav ducked away, only to return accompanied. Seth, he said, this is my wife, Hannah. I stepped forward, then froze. Was I permitted to shake hands with an Orthodox woman? I seemed to recall all touch was forbidden, though I wasn't sure if I'd made this up, a boundary I'd invented. Khana reciprocated with a quick hello. Then she spun back into the kitchen to core a head of lettuce, her hair covered except for a few straight curls bouncing to her step. Nadav gave my stomach a playful breakfast. You hungry, he said. Starving, in fact. But first I had to clean myself up.
0: Thank you so much. Um, Wow. So much more to talk about. So I am curious about the character of Moon and how he came about. Um, Talk about Moon.
1: So, you know, as a novelist, you're supposed to love all your characters equally, I guess. You know, they're like your children. Um, They're all your creations, your inventions. But Moon is my favorite character in the book. I often feel like it's a litmus test. If you uh, find Moon completely outlandish, but a little bit hilarious and a little dangerous, and you want to spend time with him, I think you'll like the book. And if you discover from very early on that he's just completely insufferable, then then I'm going to warn you and tell you the book is not going to, it may not be for you. <laughs> I, I'm drawn to that Roger Sterling type. Um, I was a member of a fraternity in college, which I'm not particularly proud to say, but I was always struck by um, the way in which a certain set of men um, use volume, use a kind of outlandish behavior as a way of masking certain insecurities. And I think that there's something really comedic there. I think that there's something really tragic there. I think that um, if we look at a lot of loud, charismatic men, they are responsible for a lot of society's ills in many cases. Um, so I, I, I think that both sociologically, I was interested in a character like Moon who makes so many bad decisions. But going back to what we were saying earlier, I think that you know someone like Trump, who is a horror on so many levels, I think is um, dangerously convenient for a lot of men. Because they can point to Trump and say, well, I'm not him, right? Or they can point to the guy in the office who everyone knows you stay away from, and they can say, well, I'm not him. And, um, you know, like, what is that What, what is that maneuver allowing for? Um, how is it endangering not only women, but all of us? You know what I mean? Um, so I, 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 he's my favorite character in the book because I think he is the clown. And I'm not a Shakespeare scholar, but you know Shakespeare uses the clown, uses the fool, both for humor and to get jokes, but also to tell some of the the sharpest truths in his plays. So that's so that's how I see him functioning.
0: What about um, I wanted to ask you about Diego? Yeah. Based on anybody or complete <laughs> fiction?
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, it's funny. Um, a lot of my colleagues from the various agencies where I worked, you know, what they want to know is who am I in the book, right? <laughs> like everyone, you know, everyone has that narcissistic impulse a little bit to say, well, you know, who, who am I, right? I must be in the book somewhere. <laughs> um, you know, I, I wouldn't say that, so Diego is Seth's boss at the agency. Um, I wouldn't say that he's based on anyone in particular, but it's also absolutely true that working at the agency I was always taking notes. If not literally, I was, I was sort of documenting and observing. And um, I'll just say that I, I pull traits from lots of different areas, but no one is based on anyone in particular. I wouldn't, I wouldn't do that.
0: <laughs> what about Ramya?
1: Oh man. Interesting. Um, <laughs> so Ramya is his coworker at, at the coffee shop slash chocolate shop after he loses his job at the agency. Ramya you know, I, I I sort of want her to get her own novel at some point. Um, I don't know if I'll write it or if I'm the person to write it, but she she's so um, she's so mysterious and she's so lost and she she battles addiction in the book. Um, I, someone asked me about a sequel and I don't know if I could write a sequel with Seth. I think on some level I'm too old. I had to start sort of write him when I was in my 20s, when I was closer in age to him um but ramya is is she's a very mysterious character with a lot of pain and there's something very um unresolved about her that that makes me want to go back to
0: well i was going to ask you if you if you were done with the characters i mean do you feel like you could you could revisit any of them again in another project
1: maybe you know i don't i don't you know you don't know um mm-hmm. i you know, right now, Hollywood is refusing to to pay its actors and its writers, right? So there, there's sort of very little going on in that front. But I've had folks come up to me and say, you know, I could really see this as a movie, or I could see this as a as a TV show. Um, I never wrote it thinking about those things. And I, you know, I, I listen, if it got made, that'd be terrific. But if it, if it doesn't, I won't be heartfall, uh, I won't be crestfallen or anything like that. But um, were it to be adapted, I think that that's that would be thrilling because that would be a way to revive these characters and um, spend more time with them. But if, but if it ends here, that's also, that's okay. You know, it's, it's cool to know that new readers are going to find the book whenever they find it, however they find it. And then that'll animate these, these people again.
0: Yeah. So um, dialogue, your dialogue, of course, is strong. And as a poet, I would think that's not something that you do much with. Um, So talk about that, writing dialogue, and do you read aloud? Is that part of the writing of dialogue for you?
1: I should. I, I, you know, um, I used to do this um, interview series called Backdraft for Guernica Magazine, where Mm -hmm. I would ask writers how they revised, which was partially a a selfish exercise. I wanted, I worked on my book for 10 years. So I wanted to learn from other writers, really brilliant writers, really accomplished writers, how did they revise so that I could borrow so that I could learn, you know? And one of the things that a lot of them talked about was reading their work out loud. And if you read work out loud, you get to hear where the dead wood is, and you get to hear where it's working. Um, So it's something that I want to incorporate more into my practice than I probably do. Um, It's not, you know, I'm, I'm such a visual person. So for me, I just, I read and I reread and I reread. And so I hear the dialogue in my head. It's not something that I've used in poetry. Um, and I'll, you know, I think that part of what's fun about switching genres is you see where you're weak and you see where you're strong. Like certain things, I, poems, I struggle sometimes with how to incorporate humor into poetry. There's some poets who are funny. Um, I would like to think that I bring some of that into my poems, but it's harder to do. First person novel, it just felt like a comedic mile monologue on some Mm -hmm. level. So it was like, oh, great. Here's where I can take this part of myself. You know, the the part that wants to be funny. I now have an outlet for it in this genre. Um, But I got to learn dialogue, which is not, which is, you know, maybe took more time, so. Not to mention plot. So so there's lots of different things. I think that's part of what's exciting about moving from one genre to another is that it it gives you more insight into um, your own tendencies.
0: Oh, well, I yeah, I mean, I don't you don't find many poets who who write novels. I mean, there are a couple, but I think most of the poets I know have no interest in writing a novel. It's like too many pages, too messy you know, like I want a page, I want to deal with the page. So when did that interest bloom for you? Do you, was there something that happened or something you read or something you tried to do with poetry that you couldn't do? Like how how did it come about?
1: There's a, there's a few answers I could give. There's, um, I'll give the intellectual answer and then I'll give the real answer, um, which is not to say that the intellectual answer is not real but you'll see what I mean. I had just finished my MFA in poetry and my favorite poet at the time was Ben Lerner. And I loved his books of poetry. And then he came out with his debut novel from Coffeehouse Press called Leaving the Atocha Station. And that, that book I just loved. I think it came out again when I finished my MFA. So probably like 2012, something like that. And I very naively read that book and I thought, you know, maybe I could try this. Right, he, he has a way of making it feel, he does that auto fiction thing where I just, he's so smart, but it, it reads so effortlessly. And that was the book that I read that I thought, maybe I could give this whole switching genre thing a try. Um, and I do think that there are more poets who are moving over because I, I agree with you. There's a lot of poets who have no interest In writing a novel, and never would, but there is, I think, a a generation of poets that is trying it, that is moving in that direction. Um, The other answer, what I I would say, is the less intellectual answer, is that I had this poetry manuscript, and I was sending it out to publishers, and I was trying to get it published. And you know, some of the poems had been picked up in in good journals, so I was telling myself, you know, this will happen, and and it just was not working. I mean, like all writers. I, I faced a lot of rejection and I felt stuck. I didn't know whether I should write new poems. Should I revise the old poems? What should I do? And I, I realized at that point, I needed a new creative project. I needed to try something with no expectations of, of publication at all, just for fun, for play. So the novel came out of that too. It, it came out of feeling stuck and, and just hearing no a lot and wanting to Um, get my hands in the clay and just mess around.
0: What do you do with rejection? I mean, like, how do you, Or what am I trying to say? I mean, rejection stops some writers and they go, you know what? I'm just not going to try this anymore. Or they go into self-publishing because they don't want to deal with rejection. I mean, how, what did rejection do for you or how did you deal with it?
1: I'm not someone who it usually stops. Um, I internalize it. Um, I feel sad. I get upset. I scream into pillows. But it, usually, it fuels me. And um, you know, I, I think I'm I'm blessed to have many friends who are writers. And I've you know, there are some writers who rejection truly. I mean, it's not a front, or at least they don't. They say it's not. You know, it just rolls off their back. Like they you know, rejection comes in. You send out to the next magazine or you send out to the next publishing house. That's not me. I I wear it. But I also, um, as much as I can, I try to learn from it. Probably too much. Like if, you know, if an editor passed on the book, I really wanted to know why. Not because, you know, I wanted to get their address so I could like egg their house or something, though I might have on that first night, but more because well, if they're rejecting it, there's got to be something wrong with it. Like, what is what, what is it that they're seeing that I'm not seeing? And um, I think that that is. I'm 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 a teacher. If I were working with a student who I was mentoring, I don't know that I would coach them on that because I think that's a dangerous road. You can you can very easily invest too much of your own self worth and in other people's opinions. So just because you get work rejected doesn't mean it's not good. Doesn't mean it's not necessarily ready. But I do think that sometimes rejection has something to teach us. And as much as possible, I'm gonna try to squeeze out any sort of information that I can from a rejection. um, Mm -hmm. So I I can go back and keep working.
0: Sure. Well, what's the crossover from poetry to fiction? I mean, you talked about, you know, that you're interested in the sentence on the line level. And of course in poetry, there's, you're not thinking plots so much as when you come to fiction, you have to think about plot. Is there any other crossover between the two for you? And it could be from fiction to poetry as well, going back. Um,
1: I, I think it sounds ridiculous, but it's the truth. I mean, you have to love words. And poets love words better than anyone I've ever met, right? I mean, it's it's hard to get a bunch of poets to agree on anything, but... Um, I don't know why anyone would go into the hardship of living life as a poet if you didn't just love language on the level of image and music and and sound. Um so if you know words, if if it's sort of like being a scientist, you know how there's um there's like uh scientists who do a lot of research in the real world, they want to you know, see how water flows off of a street and then goes down to the drain and then gets reabsorbed into the city system. Like there's that kind of scientist. And then there's a scientist who wants to know about cells or wants to know about protons. And I I think of poets as being those small scale scientists. And if you have that foundational knowledge of how the world works and how language works, I think it's, it's not necessarily easy, but you can then scale out um, I think it's harder to go in the other direction. And there are a lot of reasons why I don't think you see many novelists writing poems. One is economic. Like, why would you waste your time? It's, it's, it's like a losing enterprise. But I think the other is that, um, the focus on structure is just so different. And, Hmm. um, I don't know, a a lot of my favorite novels are written by poets. So Hmm. I, I, um, and maybe that's just because of my bias in terms of how I read and what I'm reading for. But um it, it's the crossover is interesting to me.
0: So what are some of those? What are some of your novels written by poets?
1: Sure. So recently, um, I mean, I love Ben Lerner's work, uh, I love Ocean Vaughn's work. I just finished um my friend Ruth Medievsky's mm-hmm. novel, All Night Pharmacy, which mm-hmm. is terrific. Um, Ruth and I have had the um, really fun experience of going through this process, sort of holding each other's hands because um, we admired each other's poems. So we connected that way. And then we both started writing fiction more or less the same time. We both tried to find an agent at the same time. We both tried to find a publisher at the same time. And then we launched within a month of each other. Um, So it's been great to have a pal who I can bounce ideas off of and vice versa, um, commiserate with or celebrate with so all my pharmacy is a, is a terrific book my friend Kava akbar amazing poet his novel martyr um he was kind enough to give me a galley i i read an early draft of it and it's it's just extraordinary um that comes out early next year so um but even someone like garth greenwell who people don't think of as a poet you know he started out as a poet and i think you see that in his sentences um someone like James Baldwin, someone like Margaret Atwood, you know, Toni Morrison wrote poems. There's a lot of Dennis Johnson. So anyway, I'm just throwing out names, but those are some of the people that that I love.
0: That's good. Are there similarities in the revision process at all? Writing poetry, writing fiction, any similarities?
1: I think the similarity is that you're trying to get the words right. Um, Mm -hmm. I think, and I'm not trying to piss off any poets, but revising a novel is just so hard. I, I didn't appreciate how hard it was. You change one thing about your character on page 94, and now suddenly that is gonna ripple through the entire manuscript in ways that it's like, it's like going back in time and stepping on a butterfly and like suddenly Spain doesn't exist, right? It's like you you these little changes um, have this huge, huge impact that it's hard to foresee. Whereas poems, obviously you change something about a poem that can ripple throughout the rest of the collection, but they are discrete units in a different way. You can move around the parts of a, of a poetry manuscript and it's just a it's a looser architecture. So that's part of why it took me so long was just realizing, oh shit, you know, I have to be really thoughtful about what I'm changing on, on any given page because it's gonna have ramifications that I'm just not smart enough to be able to anticipate.
0: How do you keep track? How did you keep track of all the moving parts of the men can't be saved? Like, do you have, did you use Scrivener? Do you have like something on the wall with, you know, cards and whatever? Did you have an Excel spreadsheet? Like
1: what did you do or was it all like in your head? Probably should have used those things. (laughs) It it was all in my head and it was, you know, I would change something about the ending and I would say, okay, I got to read it again. I got to read it right from the top. Um, I spend a lot of days like that, you know, just rereading it. I I know that there are different methods and I, it's not totally fair. I did, you know, um, the novel moves around a lot. There are, you know, he, after he loses his job at the agency, then we've got the parts in the chocolate shop. Then we've got, you know, there's, he goes to Allentown. Like there's, there's lots of different components. And so one thing I did was I did try color coding. Like, let me just highlight in blue, all the scenes with moon. Let me highlight in red, all the scenes with Ramya. Let me highlight in yellow, all the parts that touch on Judaism, you know, just to see if that kind of illuminated something. And it did, it was helpful, but um, I don't know. I'm not an organized dude. So I, I, the methods you describe they sound amazing, (laughs) (laughs) but they're not mine.
0: (laughs) Well, what about, you know, back to backdraft, I mean, Is that still going on? Are you still doing
1: that? Backdraft is still going on. Um, My wife and I welcomed our second child and the book came out just a couple weeks, you know, very recently. So um, I had to step away from Guernica, even though I love it. So I I don't want to say it's the end of my relationship with the magazine or the series. um, But for right now, it it is just out of necessity.
0: So I, I guess my, what I really wanted to know is, is, Did talking to writers, I mean, how did talking to writers about revision help you? Are there any concrete ways you can remember as you were writing your book that somebody said something, someone on your, on the, on backdrop said something and you went, okay, that's, that's the key here. (laughs) Hmm. Or was it a cumulative that, you know, everybody had something and you're like, yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. And you just kind of imbibed all of it.
1: It's a little bit of both. It was definitely accumulative. The piece of revision, she didn't frame it as advice, but the, the piece of advice that stuck with me the most was actually less relevant to fiction than it was to poetry. One of my favorite poets is Heather Crystal, whose poems are really funny and really surrealist. And um, if anyone's listening, you know, for, for folks listening, if you're not familiar with Heather Crystal's work, Um, Her book, all of her books are great, but The Trees, The Trees is a, is one of my favorite collections and listening to her revise, you know, I've always thought about writing and revision as this incredibly rigorous process, right? Like you, you write a line or you write a sentence and you just grind it and grind it and grind it. And the way that she works is unlike anyone I've ever met. She just generates a ton of poems. Like she just generate, you know, in a year she might create 300 poems. And then she reads them over. And the ones that have life, she keeps. And the ones that feel dead, she just discards. And she makes almost no changes to um, the ones that feel alive. And she she used the metaphor of some poems are ostriches and some are cinder blocks. And no matter what I do, I can't turn a cinder block into an ostrich. So I just discard it. And what I thought was so cool about that was that that's not lazy. Like That's still a rigorous revision process. It's just It's like those animals that lay, it's like the sea turtle, right? That lays like 5,000 eggs and then only, you know, 10 of them survive. Like that's, it's just a different way of working. And when she said that it freed me up as a poet to generate and not fixate quite as much. So, um, I did learn something from all the writers, but that just really stuck out to me.
0: Mm, It's good. Yeah. Yeah. I, I know with, uh, you Know writing fiction, um, students there are students who won't move on until they have like the first couple of chapters perfect, and this could take years, right? right. It could just go on,
1: yep, yep.
0: <laughs> I mean, what do yep. you do with students who kind of fixate on those beginnings, getting the beginnings perfect?
1: I mean, forget about students, what do I do with myself? <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm starting a new novel, and already, you know, I've got. Um, not as many words as I want because I just keep revising the opening and that's, it's not a great way to work. Um, on the other hand, you know, different people work in different, in different modes. And um, I think that you learn something by obsessing about those early lines. And if, and if you, if, if you're reading over the opening and it doesn't feel right, I can understand and I can sympathize with the impulse to try to get it right before moving on. Mm-hmm. Um, And an opening is so important. I mean, those first pages, they do matter more, right? Like, I know that they should in every page is important, but that opening, when you're trying to get it published, when you're, you know, if someone pulls your book off the library or are in the book, you know, in the bookstore, like those opening lines need to be right. right. Um, so I think being kind to yourself, like no matter how long it takes, if it takes you a year, if it takes you 10 years, you know, work how you need to work. But, um, but try to make some, you know, open the document, like work on it. I think that's important.
0: So, is the beginning, the beginning you have here for the men can't be saved? Was that the original beginning?
1: Oh, absolutely not. <laughs> I mean that that opening page. I I, I truly want to say that I spent as long on the first chapter as I did on the entire book, mm-hmm. in, on some on some level. I especially because I needed to get the voice right and. That first paragraph, uh, you know, we talked earlier about like changing the, the motivation of the character. He, at one point, he was ambivalent about the job, and then he loves it more than anything, and it's his whole life, and you know, he thinks he's the greatest of all time at it. Um, I just had to keep revising that opening a million different times.
0: Mm. So as you were working on the book, you would go back to the opening and tweak it, or, or, or was that at the very beginning of the project where you go, I'm just not going to move on until
1: I get it right? No, I, I wrote a first draft pretty quickly. I wrote, you know, and I I do think I gave a bit of a different answer when you asked. I mean, I do think I, I agree with you. You have to get a rough draft. You have to get something because I'm an anxious person. And for me, just having a draft, even if I think it's sort of shitty, at least I've got something, Mm -hmm. you know, if I, if you get too stuck in first gear, then it's, you know, Uh, for, for writers listening, I do think it's helpful to get that draft out of you, you know, and then go back. So, um, no, I, I wrote a a first chapter and then I kept writing and only then after did I go back and revise the opening a whole bunch of times.
0: Mm. How did you get it out so quickly? I mean, I take it, you didn't have an outline.
1: I think that's how I, I, I think, you know, I, I, um, Publishers weekly use the adjective freewheeling to describe the narrative. And I loved that because, I mean, it was, you know, I was in my twenties and I wrote it really quickly and it, 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 you know, it's just like, let's see someone spiral. And if, if someone's spiraling, then I, on some level, I don't think it should feel too plotted. I mean, I, I want him to just, you know, you fall out of a tree. It's not pretty. You hit a branch and then you slide down the roof and then you, you know, it's, it's like, let it, let it be weird. Um, so I didn't, I didn't write with an outline. I didn't write with a map. I just kind of tried to follow this character on his downward trajectory and see where it would go. And, and that's, I think would, you know, to go back to what we were talking about earlier. I mean, that's how he ends up at a Chabad house. It wasn't because I had some master plan. Oh, I'm going to talk about, um, you know, corporations and capitalism versus religion as a way of identifying the self. And I'm going to start out in the workplace and then I'm going to move to a religious house of worship. Wasn't like that, you know?
0: At what point did you bring in readers? Did you have people reading, reading chapters, reading the whole book?
1: Um, Throughout the process, 10 years is a long time. The person who The book is dedicated to, it says for V, um, V is a reference to my wife, Victoria. She is just, I mean, she's so smart and such a good reader and reads so differently than I do. And her shelf, like in our house, my bookshelf is all poetry and literary fiction and her shelf is much more fantasy and sci-fi and YA. Like it's just, it's, it's, it's totally different. And she reads with a different mind um, and with a different eye toward different things. And so when I gave her the the first draft of the book, you know, what I told her is like, please be honest. And my wife is ruthlessly honest, honest <laughs> to a fault. And when she read it, she said, you know, I don't think this is really good, but I think there's something really good in it. And I think you need to like, don't abandon this. Because I, I, if she had said, hey Ben, like I love you, but stick to poems, I would have discarded it. But the fact that she said, you're on to something here. It's not right yet, but um, keep going. I I needed to hear that. And sometimes I show her stuff, and she says, "You know, this isn't this isn't worth your time." And I I almost always believe her. So that vote of confidence, um, you know. And, and then there were other readers along the way, like poets, um, uh, an, an editor friend, um, you know. Lot, uh, more fiction writers as I got as I got closer
0: well we are drawing down to the end of our time and I wonder if in closing if you have any advice or tips for uh the writers listening
1: I think you know and, and we have sort of talked a little bit about advice I'm going to talk about this maybe in a, in a weird way but um Anxiety is is really hard. I'm someone who I I take anxiety anti anxiety medicine, and um, it's it's been a a struggle, like it is for many people. Um, my character in the book we haven't talked about this, but he suffers from addiction too, and starts taking a bunch of pills. Um, in my life, you know, I've struggled at times to figure out you know how much anti anxiety medication is too much, and I guess I'm I'm the reason I bring this up is because trying to figure out what you need as an artist and also what you need as a self is not always an easy balance to strike. I think that we are often really hard on ourselves as artists, like that need to get the first sentence, right. That need to to get it as perfect as you can, can um, be quite painful on a personal level in terms of what you subject yourself to. So while I'm proud of, I'm deeply proud of the book and I'm deeply proud of the 10 years that I spent on it. Part of me does wonder like at at what cost. And I think that I have no easy answers there for anyone listening, but um, I would just say that in the desire to be the best writer that you can be, you know, don't do that at the expense of having a a well-rounded life where community, where causes, where, relationships still, still matter.
0: Hmm. Yeah. That's great advice. It's so easy to forget that and just to, to hole up, right. And just uh, stay with the computer or the pen and paper and, and not go anywhere and <laughs> do anything. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Well, thank you so much for taking the time, Ben. I really, really have enjoyed this.
1: Yeah, I love the questions, Barbara. Thank you for for the thoughtful questions and, and for taking the time.
0: Thanks to all of you for taking the time to listen and a huge thanks to our Patreon supporters who helped to make this show possible. Thank you to Travis Barrett who does our music and sound editing and has an album's worth of typewriter music on Spotify. The playlist is called Just My Type. He also has other music on there under his name. You can access our archive of shows, 25 years worth at writersonwriting.com. If you want to get in touch with me, email me at penonfire at earthlink.net. My website is penonfire.com. Marie Stone is at mariestone at gmail.com. And Travis Barrett is at travisbarrettcreative at gmail.com. Again, thank you for listening. And in the meantime, remember to stay in the chair.